Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello and welcome, Mark Homer here. Now, I've got a special episode today because it is our 200th outing, uh, and that means I've been doing this quite a long time. Now, I hope you've got a lot of value on this journey with me on Mark My Words, but today I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the past. I'm going to be quite nostalgic. I'm going to talk about what I want to do in the future, and I'm going to give you some numbers along the way. So along this reflective journey of me being candid with you, uh, I'm going to talk about how I started and I'm going to talk about how I then grew and where I am today. So if you want to know how this property CEO got to where he is today, then please carry on listening. Right back to the early days, I started getting involved in property because I saw primarily other people of a similar age, I'd have been 16, 17, 18, so this is 96, 97, 98. They were investing in little houses, the market was going gangbusters, it was really growing, and I watched them make loads of money in a very short space of time. Um, so at the time, I think uh, I had a friend who maybe bought something like 97 and within two or three years he'd made about 60 grand worth of equity and I think he'd given 100 for the house, maybe it was worth 160, 170 after two or three years and I was absolutely amazed and he sold it and he went and he bought a Honda S2000, he bought a, a BMW 330, all the things that I wanted. What I didn't understand was that these were abnormal levels of growth um, you know, interest rates had fallen quite a lot through the mid-90s uh, and the market was just poised to go up. Um, and yes, he made a lot of money very quickly, probably didn't spend it on the right stuff, but he was getting things that I really wanted to get my hands on and it was exciting. I also noticed on a much bigger scale that the wealthiest people in the country seemed to have made or had seemed to have invested their money into property. If you have a look down the rich list, the Sunday Times rich list that comes out every year, a lot of those were making their money from property or had invested in property and, and grown their wealth along the years. So I knew it was an area that I needed to be in. I knew it was something that I needed to do. So that excited me and that really pushed me into this space. So it would have been around 2003 when I bought my first property. Uh, it was a ski flat in Bulgaria. It was off plan. Uh, it wasn't built for a number of years after that. Uh, it turned into a disaster, but it taught me so much. Uh, you know, I went to a new area that I'd, I'd know, knew nothing about. Uh, I relied on the people who sold the property to me. Uh, I went to the area and, and did some very superficial research on how much it would rent for. Clearly there were loads and loads of these properties being built. Uh, it didn't rent for anything like I thought it would do. Uh, and I ended up uh, paying 60 something thousand euros for something that didn't rent for a number of years. And I ended up selling it for I think 25,000 euros. So the clue was when I went into the property and the surveyor, the Bulgarian surveyor turned up and he told me quite confidently, he said, Mr. Homer, this is the most 
expensive property I have seen per square foot in the whole of Bulgaria. And at the time I thought, oh, well, yes, of course, it's because it's only 100 metres away from the base station for the lift that goes up um, to, the, to the mountains for people to go skiing. Uh, but of course, what he was really saying was, uh, you're paying a hell of a lot of money for this flat and it's probably worth a third of what you're paying it for. Anyway, because other new properties were being built for that amount in the area, um, he valued it up, the bank lent on it, uh, and I made a very, very poor investment. So I learned very, very quickly not to trust those who have a vested interest in selling me the property uh, and to go out and do genuinely independent research to find out what something will actually rent for and, and what sort of money I can make from it uh, from my own research. Coupled with that, I also learned how important it is to understand the market that you're investing in. Now, that doesn't necessarily need to be local, but it, it is a good idea to really focus all of your buying activity on a defined area. What do I mean by that? Well, I think scattergunning all over a country or all over a continent or all over the world uh, is a bad idea. I think if you focus on uh, an area, I think you build your knowledge in that area, you get great um, relationships with local agents, you get great relationships with local letting agents who are gonna explain what properties are gonna rent for, you meet all of the refurb teams and if they're all in one area, you keep rolling around, dealing with all these refurb teams over and over, you'll get cheaper and cheaper prices and you'll work out how you can get re the cost of refurb down and you'll learn even more about what things do cost to put right. Uh, and in addition, you meet all the local surveyors. So, so all of these different elements mean that it is important to focus your activities on maybe a region or an area so that you get all of the benefits of replication, of turning it into a cookie cutter. After that initial purchase where I built in Bulgaria, I also bought some villas in Florida. Again, a really bad idea. Uh, the values of those dropped. I shouldn't have bought them off plan, a little bit like the Bulgarian one, because you never quite know what's going to be built. Uh, and when they were delivered, uh, which was uh, quite early, uh, the market had already fallen off a cliff. So I was paying money into something which was worth quite a bit less than when I signed up for it. They were early lessons. Uh, and you know, I realized by I think 2005 when I started buying the, the proper stuff that I still own today and I, I still would like to buy today. Um, you know, little terraced houses locally, I think I was buying them for 75, 77,000, renting for 450 a month. Those houses are now worth about 160, 170, uh, and they'll rent for nearly a thousand pounds a month. Uh, really, really good little investments. I do them all over again. Uh, lots of people um, that I know, smart people, buy those. Um, and um, it took me a while to get there. Um, but once I understood that small terraced houses where all of that sort of froth, all of that extra 20% because they were new had gone away, uh, and these are existing properties, um, which you can buy for less than the cost of replacement, less to, than the cost of rebuilding them. You're buying real, real value with real cash flow uh, where you make money on a monthly basis from tenants. So when I started in this sector, I was very much focused on capital growth. Clearly capital growth is sexier to a lot of people. That's probably in reality, truthfully, where you make most of your money over the long run. You're probably going to make more out of that than cash flow. 
But the reality is that is not what you should be focusing on. Primarily, the priority is to focus on high cash flow models, high cash flowing property, i.e. higher yielding property. Uh, that tends to be in cheaper areas, that tends to be uh, cheaper property. You certainly don't want to be buying some palatial two million pound house and renting it out. You want to be buying the smaller stuff in the, the areas that are sort of two up from the Bronx. In addition to that, it took me a while to realize it, um, but I needed to find models in those areas that enabled me to push the cash flow higher and higher. Uh, and that would be houses of multiple occupation, uh, later on serviced accommodation, uh, and other strategies which uh, mean that I'm not just getting my thousand pounds a month for a house uh, with house of multiple occupation, I might be able to push that to 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 a month. Um, that's what keeps you safe. When interest rates go up, if you've got high cash flowing property, you tend to ride out those, those difficult periods. Um, if you get issues in, in your portfolio, in your life, or, or whatever it is, if you've got high cash flow, that keeps you safe. When I started out, I was focusing on, oh, where's the next area to make the most capital growth? Which area of the world or which area of the country? You can never predict when and where the capital growth is gonna come from. The reality is that it will come over time, uh, but you don't know what oil prices are gonna be. You don't know what you know, wages are gonna do over the next year. You don't know what general prices are gonna do. Therefore, what inflation is going, therefore, what level of inflation is gonna present. Uh, and therefore what interest rates are going to be necessarily. You can have an idea, but you know, over the medium to long run, you just want to expect that capital growth is gonna happen. The reality with cash flow is though, you can predict that before you buy the property. You can work out what it's gonna rent for. You know what you're gonna get every month as long as you put a good tenant in there. So it's a lot more in your control. It's in your gift and it's, it's something that you can influence by buying the right properties in the right areas. And, and then if you're gonna do a conversion, maybe it's a house or maybe you're taking a commercial building, if you then convert those into maybe HMO, co-living or something with higher cash flow, that keeps you safe and it provides you with monthly money uh, that you can then use to further invest or maybe spend on yourself and your family. Another big thing that I learned in the early days was that I didn't want to buy off plan. Buying off plan introduces extra risk in that the property may take a long time to be built. It may not be built at all. The builder may go bust. I know in this country there are insurance schemes such as NHBC, which might keep your deposit safe, but often uh, people end up losing their deposits, uh, especially around the world. Um, in addition, with off plan, things get changed. Maybe you've signed up for X and actually Y is delivered. Specifications change, uh, internal, um, internal fit outs change, wall colorings, internal fit outs change, uh, the design of developments change. Um, and in reality, I think for new build property, you're probably spending on average 15 to 20% more than it's going to be worth uh, as soon as you move into it. So I don't see the, a little bit like a new car, I don't see the point in signing up for something where you're dependent on the developer not going bust. And in addition, you're paying over market value just for the luxury of having something new. The reality is you're gonna put a tenant in it. It's going to be, it's not going to be new very, very quickly and you're going to end up losing money on the capital value of the property as soon as you've bought it.
So another strategy that I found in the early 2010s, especially with permitted development rights, as we were sort of given them by George Osborne and David Cameron, um, I started taking offices and converting them into apartments. I then took pubs, um, private members club, and then later on retail, converting them into rooms and into apartments. And this has been very, very beneficial because you're taking something of very low value. Maybe I've been buying pubs at 250, 300,000, maybe that's 40 pounds a foot, very, very cheap. Uh, to rebuild that, it would probably be 150 pounds a foot. So you can understand how cheap it is versus the, um, the, the rebuild value of the existing building. I've then been converting them uh, and, and Back in the day, I was probably converting them for £60 a foot. You'd probably be double that now. Um, but you've, you've got something that maybe you could buy for £40 a foot. Maybe you spend, say, £130 a foot converting it. And then it might be worth £300 a foot, £300, £350. So this is a good strategy for adding value. Uh, I've put a lot of co-living rooms, high-end, ensuited rooms into those developments which has then created much, much higher cash flows, produced much, much higher cash flows, and those cash flows can then be used for further investment or will just produce a nice amount of profit. Clearly, we've had interest rates that have gone up a 1,000%. They've gone up from about half a percent to 5.25. And because we've got good cash flow, because those buildings throw off lots of monthly rent, uh, we've been safe during this period. Those portfolios are still profitable. Uh, they're still working uh, when lots of other portfolios aren't uh, and people are, are getting repossessed and, and buildings are starting to go. So those are some of the strategies that have helped me with our portfolio to grow it over the years and to enable me to be the property CEO that I am today. So since those beginnings in 2003, I've grown this portfolio to a value of around £40 million. So in order to build that portfolio, I've had to grow as a property CEO. Over the years, my leadership style has developed. Um, it's more collaborative. Uh, I sort of see myself now as the, a conductor who just finds the best people for each job and then just stands at the front running them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, I have employees that do that all of the time, although we do. I work closely with my assistant. So she and I work um, on the portfolio uh, most of the week. Um, we also have a letting agency that's run by my business partner. Um, so there are around 10 staff in there, but I don't get involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, within that business. So really I've just got one full-time member of staff. And then in addition, have loads and loads of different people, so different work teams that we pay by the job. Uh, we have lots and lots of uh, different surveyors who, who value for, for banks. Uh, we have lots of other professionals that I'm constantly using, so solicitors at the moment, I'm using a dilapidation surveyor. And I just see my job as finding the best person for that thing that I wanna do finding the best builder that can convert that building because they've converted lots of buildings like that with let's say extra floors on top or maybe they've just done straight fit outs or maybe they've built houses before. If they've built houses before, I don't really want them for conversions unless they've done conversions as well. Um, so, you know, I'm looking all the time for the, the right solicitor. You know, if uh, 
um, I'm, I'm at the moment, I've got some leasehold properties that I want to extend, um, you know, and it will become quite contentious with the freeholder. I want a solicitor that does that all week. I want a leasehold specialist. And I know who that is. I know where to go for that. When I'm looking to purchase a property and if it's a, a complicated transaction, maybe it's commercial or maybe it's land, I know which solicitor to go to to get a deal like that done. Uh, because you know your sort of average high street solicitor, they're not going to know how to do that. Uh, if I want to go and borrow money on a PRS building, uh, maybe you know a, a building with lots of flats, lots of apartments in it, I need a specific type of lender uh, that I would go to to do that. Um, so all of these different people, uh, whether employees or the specialists or the consultants, um, you know, or, or uh, construction specialists uh, or surveyors, whoever it is that I need, I know usually where to go. And if not, I, I'd have an idea of who to ask. And that's my job. That's, that's uh, how I see my job. I'm, I'm the conductor running these people, um, finding the right one, tasking them correctly, and then making sure what they've delivered is as per the specification and agreement uh, when I instructed them. So the way in which I identify these people is mainly through other investors, other people buying, other people growing their portfolios. They come across these people and also other professionals. So, you know, if I've got a project manager, he's brought loads of good architects to me. You know, my build team have brought really good fire consultant. Uh, they've brought a great construction arch uh, architect to me who can do blocks. Um, you know, and, and different mortgage brokers, they find the right kinds of lenders. So, you know, it's having a really good network, sometimes called a power team around me. I know that if I don't know the answer to that, um, most of those other people who I know and, and, and trust, and hopefully they trust me, um, will have an idea of where to go to find these people. So for those of you who are new and are just coming into the industry, the way in which you would judge whether that person is the right person for the job is to work out whether they've done the thing that you are looking for specifically uh, before and how much they've done it before. Um, you know, if you sit down the pub and you talk to somebody about property investment and they've not really invested in many or any properties, uh, often they've got a big opinion and lots of people will sort of say, oh, uh, I should listen to them because um, they've got lots to say or they've got an opinion. But if they've not done it before and they've just been re reading the newspaper, I would sort of politely smile, um, maybe end the conversation and then usually ignore what they say. Uh, I would normally go and find somebody if I want to go and, I don't know, um, invest in a commercial building and I want to know what it will get rented at afterwards. I'll go and find the surveyor that values those types of units in that location uh, and, and try and get some information from them. I'd probably talk to the agent that sells those, although you need to be careful because obviously they have a vested interest in talking the rent up and the value up. Um, you know, if I want to go and talk uh, about what the construction costs are likely to be. I'm going to go and talk to uh, a project manager that develops those types of buildings continually. Uh, I'm going to go and talk to, um, you know, a quantity surveyor who is involved in, you know, doing conversions or um, putting conversions with extra floors on top like I, I like to do. And I'd want to see that he's done quite a few of those before. So he's got a really good idea of what the costs actually are. 
that's the person I'll be listening to rather than um, you know, talking to an estate agent about what construction costs are. Lots of them will have an opinion, but most of them wouldn't know because that's not their experience. So over the years, I've needed to engage in lots of collaborations. And clearly I have a big collaboration with Rob, my business partner. Uh, we've been in Progressive together since the start. Uh, and one plus one doesn't equal two. If you get the right partner, it can equal five, it can equal 10. Um, I have another long-standing uh, business partnership with Wayne who runs Progressive Let's. That's our management operation. We manage a lot of properties for other landlords as well as ourselves. I think he's managing somewhere in the region of 1,200 different tenancies currently. Uh, we, Rob and I have something around 400, maybe just slightly under 400 tenancies. Um, so within um, those collaborations, they're, they're long-standing. Um, you know, we've built a lot of value together. We also have a managing director. She has been here, I would say, over a decade now. Um, a lot of value has been built through that relationship, certainly in our training business. Um, she runs that on a daily basis, and clearly there's lots and lots to do. And again, one plus one equals a hell of a lot more than two. I've also had collaborations with other investors. Maybe they've supplied capital. Uh, and I have supplied the time, the knowledge, uh, and the ability to get deals done. Um, lots of investors out there are time poor, but they maybe have money. So, you know, we've been able to get money in that a bank wouldn't necessarily lend on, um, or, you know, other investors maybe have wanted to hold a property over the long term. So we built businesses with investors. You know, right in the beginning, our first business at Progressive was a property portfolio building service. Uh, we bought over 400 properties individually, refurbished them, remortgaged them, rolled the capital over several times. Um, that was a business that was built with collaboration with about 110 different investors. Uh, and we rolled that uh, out over a period of time. Um, that's not a business that we run now. It's very difficult sort of in the current environment, lots of moving wheels, but um, you know, we wouldn't be here where we are today without those collaborations with investors, other business partners, and people working within our business. So various different challenges at the moment. Clearly interest rates have gone up about a thousand percent. They've gone up from about half a percent to 5.25. That's killing lots and lots of investors. It's pulled the values of some investment properties down, maybe about 15%. Um, so, you know, that's reasonably significant. So lots of um, investors um, are having to offload because of section 24. So properties that we had in our own names needed to move to limited companies to avoid that so that you can offset all the mortgage interest against the rent. That's been a, quite a big challenge. The next big challenge is the section 21, which the government says they're gonna repeal and Labour definitely says they're going to repeal. Uh, and that's the ability to evict for any reason. Clearly, landlords don't normally want to evict for uh, no reason or no-fault evictions, as, as these are called. It's usually for non-payment of rent or because a tenant is trashing the property. Uh, the reality is that landlords have to use the Section 21 because the normal route, the, the, or the straightforward, Lots of landlords have to use the Section 21 because the other route, the sort of prescribed route of Section 8, uh, where you evict for non-payment of rent, takes too long and there are too many avenues 
to stop that eviction process. So that's going to be a challenge. Hopefully the government is going to make the Section 8 process more efficient, more effective and make sure the courts are hearing those cases uh, more quickly. And as long as that happens, uh, then at some point when the Section 21 gets repealed, then the Section 8 takes over and, and hopefully there's going to be a reasonable transition there. Other challenges are that construction costs went up a lot, probably went up a third over the pandemic and certainly after the pandemic uh, as supply chains were, were closed. That has stabilised somewhat, but I wouldn't say that the, the rents and, and the values of the buildings have adjusted quite enough uh, to make all of those conversions and those developments profitable again. So it, it has become harder to find sites that work, uh, but equilibrium is coming back. Uh, the markets are adjusting, rents are going up very, very strongly, uh, and therefore uh, the, the finished values or the gross development values are increasing, uh, and therefore we're coming back to a period where those work again. So those are my current challenges, but looking to the future and how we can develop this business further, um, I'm very, very interested in innovation. Clearly we've innovated from a, a basic sort of HMO room to something now which is really nicely interior designed with lovely furniture with an ensuite um, and you know and because of that we're getting nearly double the rent that you would do just on a little single room. In addition to that I'm now trialling with rooms to make the electricity the responsibility of the tenant. We can usually offer a more competitive rent and for those that are particularly concerned with their monthly expenditure as lots of people in rooms are they then get to manage their electricity usage and reduce the overall cost of renting a room. Obviously electricity costs went up a lot, they tripled, maybe they've come back a little bit now, um, but I'm very, very hot on looking at different ways in which we can generate and save energy, and this is one of them. I've got it running now on five rooms and studios, and uh, over a period of six months, I'll decide whether I'm gonna roll that out. Um, the big benefit with the system that I'm trialing at the moment is that tenants can go online and get a code off the electricity meter and they can just top it up using their credit card or their debit card rather than needing to get these sort of cards which we used to have in the office, which is clearly very, very cumbersome and, and, and difficult. So after six months, I'll know whether that works or not. We're certainly getting those rooms rented on that basis. There seems to be a lot of demand, but over a period of time, I'll be able to work out whether it works. I've also been putting lots of solar panels on different buildings. I like to run that for a whole year. So I've put the first solar panel array on one of our buildings. We're about six months into that trial. I like to get all seasons in there. Uh, and then I'll get a good idea of how much energy we're actually saving and therefore how many years it's going to take to pay back. I've got all of the predictions from the company that put the solar in, but I want to know in reality uh, what we're actually going to get out of that solar array. And if it works and the payback is quick enough, and I think it might be around five years, something like that, I'll probably then roll that out across uh, all of our buildings uh, because there are some good savings uh, to be had. So you might be wondering what strategies I employ to keep myself up to date, to be informed of the, the, the latest sort of changes, um, how I assess new opportunities with both property and also business. So the biggest thing that I do is network and I'm friends with lots of other people that do what I do. Um, you know, they may be developing, they may be building their portfolios, all of those people um, I'm in constant contact with. 
um, especially the ones that are actually doing the thing that I'm doing, because we can offer value to each other, because we're constantly finding new ways of, of developing the portfolio, new ways of saving costs, increasing those revenue streams, making it more sustainable and stable over the long run. So I'm constantly in contact with those types of people. In addition to that, I would read Estates Gazette. There's always lots of information in there as to what's happening in the marketplace, how things are changing. That's very interesting. Um, I read the FT almost every day. I have a subscription. That's a little bit wider, more about finance and, and property, but there's always lots in there. You know, interest rates, you can see, you know, all the articles in the FT that are relating to inflation uh, and where the money markets are going, you can see, I, I could see that interest rates were going to go absolutely nuts. A good year, 18 months before they actually did do, I managed to do two really big uh, fixed rate deals um, for over 10 years, both of them. Um, about half of our portfolio is on, on sort of fixed rate deals. Uh, my own home is on a 10 year fix. I have an economics degree. I studied uh, at university along with international business. So, you know, reading the FT just sort of fits into that really nicely. Uh, I've just put some money into government bonds. Uh, I know that's slightly um, off topic, uh, but I just feel like our natural rate of interest in this country is probably near a 1%. Uh, it's very restrictive at the moment at five, uh, and that's to get inflation down. Uh, but because of that, when interest rates start falling, as I believe they will do, the value of bonds will rise. So I think there'll be some really good capital growth in those bonds, and you can still get probably four and a quarter percent on a on a government gilt. Um, so that feeds in quite nicely to interest rates, uh, and I get a lot of that information from the Financial Times. I also read the monetary policy report that the Bank of England produces every quarter. They explain where they think interest rates or where the market thinks interest rates are going to go over the next few years. They talk a lot about the sources of inflation, um, you know, what's embedded, what's in the service sector, what's in manufacturing. Uh, and the narrative is very, very interesting. So that's on their website and that's released every three months. So lots of people ask me, what are the metrics? What are the considerations that I would make when deciding whether to purchase a property or to go into a deal? Well. Uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, with development projects, I usually want to keep them afterwards. So I want to know that there's going to be a good yield. So for me, that's usually going to be apartments or maybe rooms. I might do commercial buildings as well uh, and, and, and rent them on a commercial basis afterwards. Um, but the, the key is if I'm going to develop, I want to know that, you know, all the costs that I put in versus um, what it's going to be worth afterwards, I want at least a 30% margin. Uh, Things always happen during developments. Your profit margin tends to reduce. Uh, so often that 30 will end up being 20. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, 20 is an acceptable margin. So I'll always go in with a 30% margin. In terms of properties that I'm going to keep afterwards, and of course, the developments that I do, the vast majority I would keep, uh, I usually want to see a yield of at least seven, usually eight, and if it's co-living rooms, I probably want 11 or 12% plus. So that's the annual rent divided by uh, the value. I want to see at least seven or eight on a sort of single let or a commercial, uh, and then on co-living rooms, maybe 11, 12% plus. So there are lots of emerging trends in the property sector. Um, the big trends that I see at the moment are uh, retail is still falling. I've just had um, another one of our retail properties 
valued. Uh, it gets done every year. It's fallen again and it fell the year before. Um, you know, I just think there's so much retail out there which is great value. I am very much a contrarian. I like the counter-cyclical play uh, and I think, you know, if you can buy retail buildings, 50, 60, 70 pounds a foot, you know, they're yielding. I mean, that yield that that was just valued off, I think it was 9 or 10%. Um, you know, it's got a great tenant in it. Uh, it's, it's on the high street. Uh, it's still a, they call it a secondary location. Uh, but, you know, I think there's great value there. Um, I think the opposite is the case with a lot of the sheds. I think a lot of the sheds will be 160, 170, 180 pounds a foot in this town. Uh, you can buy retail for half that. In fact, we bought um, in the best square in, in this city, in Peterborough, uh, we bought a restaurant that is uh, let to a good tenant uh, and we paid something like the same per square foot as you would pay for a shed, an industrial unit, on the outskirts of Peterborough. For me, that has just gone way, way too far. Retail has fallen too much and, and obviously the industrial, I'm not saying they've gone too far because they're probably not that much than the cost of actually building them in this city, but they have tri tripled since uh, 2008, 2009. Uh, so, you know, for me, yes, I would like to buy some, um, some warehousing, but, you know, I think they're very fully valued. Over time, I'll probably buy more. Uh, but retail for me is where the value is and of course I love converting the uppers. Uh, other trends are there are bigger and bigger blocks now uh, becoming more saleable. Uh, lots of the institutions like buying PRS blocks, private rented sector blocks, which is what we've been developing. They're blocks of apartments. Uh, typically uh, they would want 200, 250 apartments plus. These developments are becoming very, very popular. Uh, and you know that's what I like developing. I want to produce more of those. There's a housing shortage. Uh, very, very good in terms of value per square foot that you get out of them, uh, and that's where my specialism is. So I think that is uh, a trend that has emerged and will continue to grow. So I've been thinking deeply around how we're going to progress and develop this business into the future, and to be honest, it isn't that different from what I've done for the last 20 years, um, but, you know, it's a real focus on cost. It's making sure all those portfolios are let at the lowest cost. Uh, it's making sure that we can add the most value. Um, so making really, really lovely spaces that we can get top rents for. Making sure that our debt levels are manageable and sustainable. For me, debt levels of around 50% over the long run are sustainable. Um, you know, I might start with a new purchase at maybe 60 or even 70%. But I will always look over the long run to get that down to about 50 because I think that's a lot safer, a lot more manageable. And as you can see, as interest rates have shot up as they have done recently, because as interest rates have shot up like they have done recently, if you've got lower debt levels, you're able to manage that in a much, much better way. So you've heard about where I've come from, where I am now and where I want to go. But what really helped me get to this position in terms of books and in terms of online resources? Well, well Sam Zell was a very interesting property entrepreneur. Uh, he developed one of the biggest portfolios in the whole world with Equity Office. Um, he developed some huge buildings in the United States and he is a, a really interesting character to look at. 
Andreas Paniotto has taken many, many buildings in East London and converted them into apartments. He ended up with several thousand apartments. Here's another. Here's somebody else that I've met, interviewed, uh, and developed a lot of my strategy from. And there are lots of other local investors with portfolios maybe in the hundreds of millions, maybe they're a little bit older, that I've learned lots from over the years as well. I also get asked a lot, what sort of job should I try and get? What should I go into to be able to develop myself best as the, the best property entrepreneur? And I say, I say to lots of people, try and get a, a job, even if it's something menial like T-Boy, uh, in a company that's doing something that you actually want to do. Now that might be an agency, so it could be in a state agency or maybe you know commercial agents are quite good to get into because lots of those are uh, dealing with development, they're dealing with commercial buildings, uh, they're meeting you know all of the investors that are delivering these types of projects. So you know, commercial agency can be very valuable. They also have management, so they'd be managing commercial buildings, maybe residential management. You know, you'll learn quite a lot uh, in that sphere. Uh, but I think you know, just generally, sort of a state agency, uh, you know, or, or maybe sort of larger agency in London can teach you a hell of a lot about the market, uh, about how capital values work, uh, about what sort of buildings are attractive in which sorts of areas uh, to investors um, and to, to tenants. And I think it's about getting that practical experience at the lowest rung of the ladder uh, to start putting all of these theories into effect. So in terms of my legacy, what I'd like to leave behind are buildings that actually do look nice, that people walk past, sort of see and think they add something to the area. Uh, I didn't have the luxury of that when I started because I was um, sort of buying existing pretty ugly uh, looking buildings. But since I've started developing, uh, we've certainly put a, a real focus on getting the elevations to look right. My wife picks the colours. We have a scheme. Uh, so every time we develop a new building, it's to this scheme. Uh, so it's recognised uh, and we, we get a brand uh, in the local area. I also want to be known for innovation, for developing new strategies and developing better uh, products that the, the market actually gets something from that enhances people's lives. Uh, and along with that, efficiency. Uh, you know, I love driving costs down, uh, creating margin, uh, and making sure that all of our endeavors are efficient uh, and we're using the best strategies to deliver the best product at the lowest cost. So you've heard about me, you've heard about what I would like for my legacy, but what do you want to leave for your legacy into the future? So let me leave you with that thought and I will see you on the next episode.